Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management. On WTMJ. Morning, everybody, and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. It is Saturday. It is March 17th. It is Money Talk from Annex Wealth Management. Uh, my name is Andy Clayton. Mark Oswald, good morning. Good morning. It's St. Patrick's Day to you as well. Tell me you picked a 16 to beat a 1. Do you well, have that prowess? Well, i got to tell you, you know, I'm in the office pool, but <laughs> I'm the guy everybody likes to beat, so I tend to pick a lot of upsets, and uh, so my, my, my winner is still in the tournament, but <laughs> okay, that's why. Right, right. It's fun. I saw a tweet this morning, and it said, my fiancé picked... Picked everything based on mascots, and she liked a golden retriever versus a cavalier. So she's still in it. Well, yeah. that, that was quite an crazy. That's crazy. Big show today. So we've got a lot of things to talk about. Um, you know, obviously the markets continue to move. Investors continue to be concerned about what's going on in the markets. But we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Fed meeting that's coming up. We've got our mailbox empty. Talk a little bit about our investment committee. And then Deanne Phillips is going to be with us later. We're going to talk about college planning a little bit. Some good information there. But first. As usual, start with a little market update. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, joins us. Derek, quite a week in the markets again. Yeah, it was. Um, actually, after a fairly strong period of rebound from the lows we made in early uh, February, um, this week the market pulled back about 1.5% in the Dow and the S&P, largely over protectionist concerns. So, we, you know, you look at year-to-date numbers, still some positive numbers, some gaudy numbers coming out of the uh, of the Nasdaq. You look at the triple Qs, and you know up almost ten percent uh, for the year. So there's still, you know, we, you can have a bad week, you can have a bad day, but the momentum is still moving forward. Yeah, I think it's just a you know a case of, of really strong corporate fundamentals, particularly in the in the tech sector and the industrial sector and the like. But then on the opposite side of the coin, you've got you know the threat of higher rates. Some people are a little bit concerned about inflation. And really, this this protectionist stance has unnerved many investors trying to figure out what's likely to occur. Will it just stop its steel and aluminum tariffs, or are we going to talk about Chinese intellectual property and the like? And that's the big T word, right, tariffs. I mean, that's been on everybody's mind. Certainly, if you turn on CNBC or this station, people are talking about this right now. And, and at the end of the day... How big of an effect does this have on U.S. investors, U.S. companies? Well, it really depends on the on the nature of the beast. For example, it was it was publicly reported that Trump is looking to trim the trade deficit with China by a hundred billion dollars. That's not a small number, and may may be willing to impose up to sixty billion in tariffs against the Chinese in a variety of product areas like telecom equipment, software, clothing, etc. And it's really manifest just in the performance of Boeing, which has been one of the stock market darlings. Uh, for the last year, Boeing was about a 9% weight in the Dow because it's a price-weighted index, and it was down almost 8% this week because obviously one of the areas in which China could retaliate is simply cancel orders for Boeing planes and, and move to Airbus. So you look at, you know, we talked about Chinese steel and how much Chinese steel comes into the United States, and if you look at the list, the pure list, it's down there. It's 10, 11, 12 on the list of exporters of steel to the United States, but 
That number might not be believable. Right. Anyone who's done any kind of work whatsoever knows that China imports more than 2% of steel into the U.S. because what they've done essentially is set up shell corporations across the globe in countries like Vietnam and India. So basically steel gets delivered from China into those countries and then is repurposed and then shipped into the U.S. But that doesn't count in that number that the people against tariffs cite as a 2% number. So we talked a little bit last week about Harley-Davidson and now we've talked a little bit about Boeing and, and companies that might be impacted by this. How else might China retaliate against the tariffs if they come to pass? Well, there are any number of ways they could hamper American farmers because China is a huge consumer of U.S. soybeans and beef and grains. Uh, They could also balk at purchasing U.S. treasuries. They're the largest holder of U.S. treasuries from overseas. Uh, They could institute broad tariffs against U.S. goods. For example, why can't they slap a tariff on an iPhone? Well, absolutely, and those are, you know, companies like Apple are certainly aware of that because of the fact that they have to turn over their intellectual property when they do business in those countries. Right, and that's what Elon Musk raised that issue before. He was talking about how, you know, there are four Chinese-owned auto companies in the United States, 100% owned by a Chinese interest, whereas for him to open an auto store in China, he would have to partner as a joint venture with a Chinese firm and also give away technology secrets, know-how and whatnot, to to his partner. Now, that doesn't seem like a fair deal to me. Is there any update on, uh, we talked before about Mexico and Canada being exempt for this from the tariffs for some period of time. Any update on that? Well, the one thing I heard this week was, you know, Larry Kudlow, who's been on you know on CNBC for years and who I knew years ago as an economist for Bear Stearns, he's now succeeding uh, Cohn as, as the president's advisor, and he's very much in favor of strategic trade initiatives, right. not broad-based, because broad-based leads to all sorts of secondary and tertiary effects, as, as actually Paul Ryan has mentioned several times. How do companies like U.S. Steel benefit? Well, you'd think they would benefit from, from higher prices, but the stock actually hasn't really reacted because essentially, you know, the, the, the price will probably be passed along to customers. So to the degree that steel prices rise, customers will pay a higher price. That doesn't necessarily mean, mean that U.S. Steel will make any more money. You mentioned Boeing, and after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened with Boeing this week and why you may not want to look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average going forward. Thank you, Derek, and uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I like Derek Felsky a lot. He's good stuff. Know the difference. We talk about that all the time. AnnexWealth.com is the website. When you get there, it'll say know the difference. It is team. It is technology. It is trust. Money tips that don't cost a thing. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. We're back, and uh, Derek Felsky joins me, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. Derek, before the break, we were talking a little bit about what happened in the markets this week, and we kind of limited it to the stock markets. But one of the companies we talked about was Boeing. And you had made a mention about how it makes up as much as 9% of the Dow and the Dow is kind of unique in the way that it's constructed. No, it is. The, the Dow, you know, it's the oldest index. That's why I think the media continues to focus on it. It also tends to have the biggest point moves, which I think also gets headlines. But So basically, the Dow is a price-weighted index, which essentially means that of the 30 companies, the company with the highest price per share, which in this case is Boeing, trading at about $330 a share, is the largest weighting in the Dow. For example, my Apple, which is a much larger company in terms of market cap, is only one, has only one-third the impact that, that Boeing does because it's, the price of its stock is that much less. So, Derek, slow that down for me a little bit. So you're talking about two huge companies. You're talking about Apple on one hand and Boeing on the other hand, different industries, different companies for sure. 
but just because of the fact that one's stock price is higher than the other, it has a bigger impact on the daily move of the Dow? Right. I mean, if you think about it, in the last year, Boeing's Boeing basically contributed 1,000 points to the overall advance of the Dow, more than double that of the next closest uh, contributor, which was Caterpillar, which added 420 points. In the case of Boeing versus Apple, Boeing rate weights at about a 9% weighting on the Dow, which is almost twice what Apple weighs, even though the market cap of Boeing is $700 billion less than the market cap of Apple. So clearly, you know, Apple's a more important measure of, of economic vitality in the United States, but because of the odd price-weighted construction of the Dow, Boeing has more significance. So if you're an investor out there and a listener to our show, you, know, you, you look at things and you connect the dots. In this particular case, we're talking about aluminum in the case of Boeing. So you see the tariffs you know, announced, and then you look at a stock like Boeing, you start to get a sense of why the Dow moves the way that it does on a daily basis. Right, and that's why, you know, Mark, you always point out to focus on percentage moves, not point moves. A thousand-point move in the Dow now is about a 4% move. Uh, and that 1,000 points sounds a lot more aggressive than a 4% move. And so when we, you know, it's, it's something we look at when we invest in ETFs in our client portfolios. How is an index constructed? Does it make sense? Does it reflect an expression of the leverage to the economy that we're trying to get on a tactical basis? So we don't tend to use the Dow or a or, or Dow ETF in any of our tactical portfolios because we don't, we're not particularly comfortable having a 9% weighting in Boeing when, in fact, you know, we feel it is vulnerable to tariffs. So I, look, I spend much more of my time looking at the S&P 500 and even the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ has some pretty high weightings as well, but nothing as egregious as the weighting of, of Boeing as it pertains to the Dow. I think that's a great takeaway for investors and listeners this morning is when you start looking at your portfolio versus the index, you're comparing apples and oranges sometimes. So it's it's sometimes you get your statement and you look at it and say, well, I'm up X percentage, but the S&P was up Y percentage. Why am I not up the same as the Dow, for instance, or down as far as the Dow? This is one of the reasons why. Yeah, and the other reason is, you know, let's talk to the, about the S&P 500 now. That's a market cap weighted index. And the problem with a market cap weighted index is the bigger a company gets, the more important it becomes to perf- the performance of that particular index. So essentially, it's almost like a momentum-weighted index. So the companies that are truly successful have grown the most rapidly over the last four or five years, have seen multiple expansions. They're going to have a larger and larger and larger piece of the performance of the S&P 500. And, was, and as we all know, as, a, as companies get bigger and bigger and bigger, it gets harder and harder and harder to move that needle. Great stuff. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the Fed, look forward to next week's meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee and what might happen there, and talk a little bit about GDP forecasts. Money Talk. Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Back with Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. Derek, before the break, we were talking a little bit about an important meeting that's coming up this week. The Federal Open Market Committee, the Fed, they get together, uh, you know, on a, on a periodic basis and talk about monetary policy in this country. And uh, we have a pretty good sense of what's going to happen at this meeting on the 21st. Yeah, right now, expectations are that the Fed's going to raise rates at least three times this year, depending upon the data. So they meet, they'll announce their decision on, on March 21st. The, the Fed fund futures market is basically pricing at a 100% probability that they'll raise the rate. And in the past, whenever that 
that probability had been above 50%, the Fed has followed suit. Uh, the other thing we'll be looking at, too, is how the Fed dot plots look. And basically, the Fed dot plots are their expectations about where they think rates will go in the future. So typically, what we will do then is compare that to what we think the market has priced in based on the shape of the yield curve and the like. For the first time in quite a while, the Fed dot plots and the market dot plots are essentially in sync. So depending upon how the economy goes, how the effect of this tax cut, what the effects of this tax cut are on, on GDP, um, what effect perhaps this trade uncertainty has on GDP, that will probably determine whether we see two, three, or four rate, rate hikes this year. So how do, how do fixed income investors react to this? You look at the year-to-date numbers. The egg bonds down about 2%. That intermediate-term bond, 7- to 10-year treasuries, are down about 3%, and the 20-year Treasury down about 5%. So you know, what do fixed-income investors do now if there is going to be a rate raise in March? Well, right before the, the market uh, corrected at the, at the end of January, the 10-year yield got to about 2.99%. This past week, we traded back down as low as 2.80. There's, there's critical long-term uh, resistance in terms of yield at about the 3% level. So what I would tell folks with their fixed income exposures, I would really take a look at, you know, what the duration of their portfolio is in terms of the, their bond positions. In other words, how sensitive are those positions to a change in rates? Our belief at Annex is you want to keep your duration relatively short, and you can basically get the same yield without as much interest rate risk. And one way you do that is look at more credit-sensitive vehicles, things like bank loans, high-yield bonds, preferred stocks, and even, you know, some bond substitutes. I mean, this year so far, REITs and uh, utilities have been really hammered. But those valuations got really excessive. But at some level, REITs look pretty attractive because those yields, as those prices go down, those yields get juicier and juicier. Well, thinking about the Fed, I mean, the other thing that we talked about this week in our investment committee is some of the revisions to the gross domestic product or GDP number that we expect for the rest of 2018. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, one 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 service we, we track is the Atlanta Fed. And in late January, they came out with an eye-popping number. They were thinking first quarter GDP might be as high as 5 5.4%, and that was due primarily to a really hot ISM manufacturing index result. But subsequent to that, we've seen three months of disappointing retail sales. I mean, granted, folks haven't seen that, that increase in their paychecks until just recently. But basically, expectations for the first quarter GDP are now more muted. Both J.P. Morgan and Goldman cut their first quarter forecast to about 2% for the first quarter. The Atlanta Fed is basically at that level as well. So the original optimism that we had at the beginning of January has been somewhat muted. When you look at that, that was really a big number. I mean, 5.4%. Now, that would get the Fed's attention when you talk about monetary policy, but a 2% number, whether it's wage growth or the growth of the economy, that's a number that's digestible by the Fed. It is, and, and frankly, you know, we, we, we were also worried a couple of months ago about wage growth, and to the degree that the GDP growth is softening a little bit, and as we mentioned last week on the show, that jobs report showed that 800,000 people rejoined the workforce. That is mitigating the pressure on wages, which, again, would suggest the Fed may not have to be as rapid in raising rates as people had feared as much as two, three weeks ago. You know, one of the things that we've started at Annex over the last six months has been a mailbag, an email bag, and a lot of listeners do send us questions every week, and then we bring them to the air. You know, usually if you're you're thinking about a question, somebody else has the same question. So you can go to AnnexWealth.com slash ask, A-S-K, and post a question there. When we come back after the news, we're going to do a question from Sherry, who asked a, a very interesting question about our investment committee. Mark, do you, do you have... 
from simple investments to stock advice. Back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. We're back with Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. And before the news, we talked a little bit about the way that our listeners communicate with us through our website at AnnexWealth.com slash ask. And a lot of people have posted questions this week. You know, it's difficult when you're, you know, listening on a Saturday morning to either drop what you're doing and pick up the phone and call the station. So this is a way for people to do that. Uh, we encourage you to, if you've got a question, as I said, a lot of times somebody else has that same question. Sherry posted a question this week, Derek, that I'll put to you while I have you. And she wrote, how does Annex decide what to invest their clients' money in? Who actually decides and how many people are on that team? Well, we have, as you know, Mark, we have a, a committee we meet every Tuesday. It consists of you, Dave Spano, and, and Mark Beck. Um, typically, I'll prepare, you know, an agenda, uh, which we've agreed to in advance. And we'll basically just review our portfolios top down. We'll review our, our models. We'll review the performance of the various actively managed mutual funds we have in the portfolio, our ETFs our individual equity names and our equity income strategy. Uh, we have a, a solid basis and a process for evaluating individual companies. We'll triangulate the, the, the research on individual companies with sector exposure and like. So, for example, you know, we continue to have an overweighted position in technology and financials, and that's primarily because we have so many attractively valued tech and financial companies in our individual company database. Uh, then again, on you know, then once a month we'll get together with all the relationship managers and talk to them about you know what we've been doing in the portfolio, what we're thinking. You know, just yesterday I actually we we shifted out of one position to another. I I notify everyone at the firm about what we've done and why. Uh, so our RMs are fully conversant. So when they're when our clients get documentation that we've made that change, they'll be aware of it and be able to explain it. Well, what's really neat this year is that we've made a bit of a change to instead of just having a smaller group in a committee, and you've got to keep it small because you've got to come to a consensus. And right, analysis point of paralysis is a problem. Exactly. But one of the neat things that we did is those RMs, those relationship managers, is inviting them into the committee on a rotating basis because what happens at the end of the day when we do that is the individual client gets a question. They get to pose questions to the committee. So they have their individual concerns. They can bring it through their relationship manager and say, why do we own X, Y, or Z in our portfolio, we can get an answer back to them. And that's a pretty neat thing when you don't have the investment committee's not sitting in London or it's sitting in a tower in New York City, but... Gosh, instead, I wish it was. <laughs> exactly. This time of year, can we move it south maybe? But, <laughs> but in any regard, you know, it's pretty neat because the clients really get a seat at the table. No, they do. And, you know, there's no shortage of good eyes. You know, I mean, when I think about the four of us, we have over 120 years of experience. You know, we've been through bear markets. I mean, as I said recently... There are very few individuals that have ever seen a bear market in bonds. I vaguely remember the end of it. Uh, but, but basically, it's, it's good to have some experience with cycles and understand how fear and greed can oscillate, you know, from one extreme to the other. And, and the, the team and, and all those extra eyeballs and opinions and experiences, I think, lead to better, more consistent results for our clients. Well, we're not going to spike the football this morning, but certainly we've had some successes to our committee. We talk a lot on the air about what we own and what we don't own. You look at the sectors, Derek, that have held up extremely well last year and into this year, and talk about those sectors and what's come out of our investment committee in terms of our tactical decisions. Well, we were, we were talking about that just a minute ago. And In fact, if you look on a year-to-date basis, there are basically 10 sectors in the S&P 500. We have exposures to four of them. The ones we don't have exposures to, and this is with the S&P up 3% for the year, are basic materials, which is down 2% for the year, consumer staples, which is down 6 
energy, which is down 7, utilities, which is down 5, and real estate, which is down 8. So we managed to miss all of that negativity. And instead, what we've held in our portfolios through this, so far this year are consumer discretionary up 7, healthcare up 4, technology up 11, and financials up 4. So all of the sectors that we've held tactically have outperformed the S&P, all of the ones that we do not own have significantly underperformed, and that really does a world of good for the overall performance of your portfolio. And it certainly takes some of the volatility out of it. You talk about active management versus passive management. Sometimes you just go by the S&P 500. You would have got that energy, and you would have got the staples, and you would have got some of the others, the utilities that didn't perform so well, and you may not have had the overweights that we've had in our tactical portfolios. So, it, you know, this active approach to it, this active approach to the committee, Sherry, I think really makes a big difference ultimately in the performance of the portfolio. The other thing, too, Mark, you know, I talked about, you know, Dave and I did a little bit of a run-through on the Dow, and we looked at the 30 stocks, and based on our model, 11 of the 30 stocks in the Dow qualify as buys under our, our purview, right, under our beliefs. And that's 47% of the market cap of the Dow. So, again, you know, you want to cherry-pick when you can, individual names. But if you can't do that, one thing you can do with ETS that I think is fairly creative, that which we're doing, is we're actually looking at the index construction of these various ETS, applying our individual bottom-up analysis, and then basically weighting ETS based on that. So, for example, there are 12 different energy ETFs, but some of them incorporate better names than others, and we want to be in those if we choose to move towards energy in the future. Sure, we hope that answers your question. If you've got a question for our experts over here at Annex Wealth Management, go to AnnexWealth.com slash ask and get your question posted. Hey, we should talk about locations. There's a number for Annex Wealth Management. The original, the OG as I call it, is the Elm Grove office. They're also located in Mequon for you folks in the North Shore. Lake Country is open as well. And Appleton. And uh, coming soon, the Fister. The Fister is going to be a, a magnificent downtown location. Again, AnnexWealth.com. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Joining us now is Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management. Good morning, Deanne. Good morning, Mark. Well, it's uh, that time. I mean, spring break's upon us, and a lot of college students, my daughter's home from Marquette this week, and a lot of kids are looking forward to heading to the beach in Florida or whatever it might be. But for us parents, we're starting to think about the fall semester already and how we're going to pay for college. Well, we are, and unfortunately, you know, the cost of college has skyrocketed about 336% over the past 30 years. And what you showed me this week that, that spurred the idea of doing a segment today on college savings was this idea of parents and what their emotional reaction is to, you know, their obligation to their children. They do. About half of parents really feel that it is part of their financial obligation. And here as financial planners is where we come into the conundrum because we're seeing more and more people come through our doors that might have a really nice retirement portfolio, but they have all this student loan debt that they've taken on for their children. Right. So co-signing, right? I mean, Absolutely. They're doing these parent plus or whatever they're called. Those or, or actually just going to the bank. in and going to the bank. Yeah. Right, right. Or you see people taking money out of their 401k to fund a college education as well. and Ooh, bad you know, idea. Or out of life insurance policies or a lot of different buckets that money comes out of that wasn't intended for college education. Right. So let's talk a little bit about 529 plans. I think that, you know, they're not as widely used as a lot of people would hope. I mean, in Wisconsin, it's the EdVest program, right? It is. So EdVest, so, so most states have a state-sponsored program where you can put away after-tax money and it can grow 
tax-free and then be used for education, for higher education expenses, and also used tax-free. So let's dispel one myth right up front because I always get this question. So if I put money in the Wisconsin plan and my kid ends up going to USC, can you still use that money if they go to a college in California? You can. You just have to be careful that you're not going into a, state, into a school-specific Right. Program. So you want to go at the state level. You do. You want to go at the state level. You want to go stick with the 529. So EdVest is fine. You can go anywhere you want. There are some plans out there that are prepaid college tuition, but you are specifically talking about a single university then. So in the 529 scenario, in the state of Wisconsin with the EdVest program, there's some tax advantages to putting money away for college education. There definitely are. And unfortunately, Mark, we saw in a study that uh, less than a third of people utilize 529s. Most people just use a plain old savings account, and we know how that's been doing lately, yeah. right? Or they use an UGMA or, or an UTMA account, mm-hmm. for instance, and they go to their bank and they put money. That's still not a bad idea, but... You're losing the tax advantage of that 529 plan. Well, you also, you know, as a 529, the grantor's in control of that money. So for my child, for example, you know, I'm the custodian, but I have not gifted that money to her. I can change beneficiaries. So if my child's a genius and gets a full-ride scholarship or ends up not going to college, I can assign a different beneficiary and not lose the benefit. That's an excellent point because in the UGMA, the Gift to Minors Act, or in UGMA, the Transfer to Minors Act, You've given that money away. Irrevocably, right. And at 21, they get their hands on it. When they reach the age of majority, whatever that is in, in, the, in, state, Wisconsin, in, in right. the state that mm-hmm. you're in, then they get that money. And if they think that a Corvette's more important than Columbia, I mean, there's nothing you can do anymore, right? That is exactly how it goes. So then we rely upon the, how you brought them up in your household, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so this year, we have until April 17th to make a 2017 contribution. So we're, Even though we're in March of 2018, you can still make a 2017 contribution, $3,140 you can put in for any child or any beneficiary, and you get that state tax deduction per child for that amount. That's correct. And it's April 17th this year because the 15th is on the weekend. So the IRS gives you that is the tax due date is the 17th this year. But, yeah, so people forget that as long as uh, you are a resident of the state of Wisconsin and file state of Wisconsin taxes, you can put up to $3,000 that that would end up being in a formula against the state income tax, and would get you back you know, a couple hundred bucks off of, as a credit off of your state income taxes. So if you have a child that's going to be going to college, uh, or you're thinking about going to college yourself, I mean, you can do this for yourself as well. We've got some ideas coming up after the break. We're going to talk about a slick way to pay for college education this fall that's coming up and still get a tax deduction for 2017. Yeah, happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. It is Money Talk. It is Saturday, March 17th. Website, AnnexWealth.com. First thing you'll see is know the difference. Hit that. Get that free portfolio analysis. And when we talk about difference, we're talking about team, technology, and trust. Annex Wealth. Never get less than your money's worth. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. We're back with Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management, and we're talking a little bit about college savings and 529 plans this morning. And, you know, before the break, Deanne, we talked a little bit about 
2017 contributions. It's not too late. It used to be December 31st was the cutoff for doing 529 contributions for a calendar year. They've extended that in Wisconsin now up until the tax deadline. So if you haven't made a 2017 contribution, it's not too late. No, it's not. And, it's you know, you can do it for a skip generation also. Sometimes people say, well, doesn't it have to be the parents? No. You can set up a 529 for anyone that, you know, within reason, right? And you can take that state tax deduction per beneficiary. So I, as the grantor, then would set one up for my child. I could set one up for myself if I wanted. And that I could fund them each with, I could do over $3,000 each. But 3000 sure. is the cap of where you get that state tax credit. Yeah. You can actually go for thousands. But you got to be kind of careful about overfunding them uh, for a plethora of reasons, but not the least of which you want to stay within that gift tax exemption of the 14000 So if you have a child, like I do, going to college again in fall, and you haven't made a 2017 contribution yet, there's no minimum holding period, right? None. So you could still make a 2017 contribution, get the tax deduction for it in April, and then use that money to pay for tuition in August. Absolutely. So it's a slick way of being able to make sure you get that two or $300 off your state income tax. And, uh, you know, we're going to do that because uh, she's going to get the money one way or the other. We may as well get the tax benefit to do it. Sure. So it's not too late if your child is in college now to start one, fund it, get the tax break. All right. So that's the funding side. Now let's talk about the paying side. Once you've got, okay. once you've amassed this money into this 529 plan, what can you pay for with the, with the 529? I mean, tuition's the easy one, but there's a lot of other things. There are. Tuition, room and board, computers, books. Books are expensive, you know, and electronic versions of those. But let's talk for a moment, Mark, about the things that don't qualify as a 529 expense. So what would that be? Well, one that comes to mind is, you know, your daughter's at Marquette, but what about those students who are out of state? Transportation costs cannot be paid with 529 money. So it doesn't matter if you're taking the bus, fueling your car, getting to campus some other way. Unfortunately, you can't use the distributions to cover the costs. How about off-campus living? I think we get into the later years with kids. uh, You know, they move out of the dorm, and now they're on their own per se. And, uh, you know, they've got expenses related to rent, and they've got expenses related to groceries. Can any of that money be used for those purposes? They can, but there's each college has something called a cost of attendance. And so they estimate attendance costs, and they're provided on their website. They give you an idea of what you can expect to pay when you attend that specific school. And how much you can actually withdraw from your 529 to pay for those costs are based on the cost of attendance at the chosen school. So, that, for instance, if your child is at Wisconsin and they live off campus, they've moved out of the dorms, you could go to the University of Wisconsin website and get that dollar amount. It might Absolutely. say five, six, seven hundred, or a thousand dollars a month, whatever it might be. Right. And every college is going to be different, but you can use that. It's basically replacing the cost that it would have cost to be in the dorms or to be on the meal plan. That's exactly right, and that extends over to your lifestyle. Also, where you can live can be covered by your 529, but your room furnishings aren't, so you can't deck out your dorm room and, <laughs> and write it off. Uh, so the same thing with buying groceries with your money, entertainment, and dining are not, dining out does not count as a qualified 529 expense. And beer does not count as a qualified expense. A lot of information there, and folks, you know, it's not too late for 2017. Make yourself a contribution there. If you're going to pay for tuition anyways, you can get that tax deduction. You can still write the check in August. It's a good way to fund college education. We encourage it. You know, we're savers, we're planners, and, and uh, by trade. So, you know, if, you, if you're inclined to do that, go ahead Uh, Deanne, thanks for coming in and uh, spending some time with us. It's always a pleasure. Happy St. Patty's Day to you. You bet. All right. There we go. It's uh, 1056 WTMJ, March 17th. So that is St. Patrick's Day and uh, Mark Oswald. Someday, if we ever have time, 
your method of how you work uh-huh. college with your kids were good because we've had a discussion, Mark and I, have in the past. It was like I, I invested into 529s for our kids, yep. but I, I kind of wish that I would have put a little bit more of their skin in the game. We did kind of, but your method I thought was really, really good. So maybe well, was, yeah, yeah, someday yeah. we'll talk about yeah. that. But you know, essentially, it's a graduated scale where they. We pay for everything their freshman year, and, and then by the time that they're juniors and seniors and are living off campus, we start to cost share with them a little bit. Yeah. So when they're done with college, they've paid a phone bill. They've paid, yeah. you know, they, they've bought groceries before. They know how to shop and save and what it is to budget and all those kinds of things. So, you know, everybody's different. Every parent's different. And as Deanne and I discussed, I mean, parents, uh, you know, a lot of parents say, hey, you're 18, you want to go to college, you're on your own. I understand that philosophy. There's other people who pay for everything, and I understand that philosophy. At 18, um, I, I didn't have that. I mean, if, look, retrospect, they should have shipped me into the Army. I mean, and that probably would have been the best thing for me at 18. Well, yeah. I was 17 when I went to college and oh, okay. because of the fact that I'm a September birthday. So okay. I started those first two or three weeks I was 17. I wish the same thing. I wish I would have gone into the service and done, done the GI Bill. Sure. For myself, I think that would have worked even better. But, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's got a plan on how they want to handle college education, if college is, is for your kids. I mean, some kids just are, are not cut out for it or have different interests that don't involve a four-year school. Will 529s, will they do a, a tech school? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you, you look at qualifying expenses, and um, a lot of good conversations about what qualified expenses are, what you can use it for. Secondary uh, schooling, but there's there's even talk now about using it for primary schooling. So if you go to a private high school or something like that, you could use five twenty nine dollars there as well. Yeah, we're still paying off a little bit of our private high school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. All right, that does it for the show. Before we wrap up, I want to tell you about a couple of seminars that are coming up. They're both for Retirement Roadmap. I think they're excellent. There's one coming up yet this month, and that is at uh, Butamore. So our Appleton listeners, this one is for you. Yeah, it's it's a great presentation. Eight uh, six o'clock. I'm sorry, March twenty ninth. 6 o'clock, Butamore Country Club. And then uh, for you people in the North Shore, Mequon office, April 10th, also at 6 o'clock, Retirement Roadmap. If you're a couple years away or you're just making those forever decisions on your retirement, great information. There you go. All right, Mark, thank you very much, and uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, my German friend. All right, there you go. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Scripps Media Incorporated.